0: the name of the true and living God. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Some years ago, I tried my hand at screenwriting. I learned many things when I did that, including the lesson that screenwriting is definitely not my calling. But it is a fascinating pursuit, and I'll never look at Uh, the same way at a play or a movie or TV show, now that I can kind of imagine what it's like for that individual who sits before the blank screen and has to create and, and give that starting script that everything else will flow from. And one of the books that I encountered when I was reading up to learn about how does one write a screenplay is a classic of the genre. It's written by a man named Sid Field, and the book is called Screenplay. Uh, Sid Field, when he was a young man in Hollywood, um, beginning to make his way as a writer and and working with a production company, his job was to read all the screenplays that came in to the company where he was working. And he read, amazingly, 2,000 scripts in the course of two years, which is about three screenplays a day. And of those 2,000, do you know how many were accepted and how many were rejected? 1960 of the scripts were rejected and only 40 made it which started him on the path of asking that question what makes a good script work versus one that doesn't and so his book uh, lays out many of the principles but one of the key principles one that's always stayed with me after reading uh, what he had to say was the concept of what motivates people What motivates your characters? In a movie, movies are interesting because you see people do unusual things. And in order for it to be believable, you have to believe that they have a really strong motivation to do these outstanding things that they do. They have a reason to make the choices that they make. And in good screenwriting, every action of a character can be seen going back to that character's ultimate motive. So for example, in the movie The Fugitive, if you remember that movie, the lead character played by Harrison Ford is on the run. His motivation is to prove his innocence and to find the murderer of his wife. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's motivation is to go back to Kansas. E.T. also wants to go home. James Bond does all the incredible things that James Bond does because his motivation is to stop world domination by evil forces. Pee-wee Herman wants to get his bike back. (laughs) Marty McFly wants to get back to the future. (laughs) You have to really know what your character's motivations are for your movie to work. But it's interesting because we can also ask the same question about ourselves. What is our motivation? What is it that has power over us that causes us to make the specific decisions that we make every day? We make these decisions every day dictated by whatever the motives are that have power in whatever moment it is. And I don't need to tell many of you here in Washington DC that to be good at politics to be good at lobbying, to be good at advocacy, you have got to know the motivations of people. We may also ask ourselves, are there short-term motivations that we are responding to as opposed to perhaps more important, longer-term, bigger motivations? Perhaps motivations that are even more deeply aligned with our main values that we hold. It's a reality that the various motivations that we live with are often in conflict with each other. And so, in other words, are we responding sometimes to an immediate motivation rather than a more important, deeper, and less convenient motivation? Our diocese here and this church has been involved for some time in what we call care of creation ministry. In other words, looking out for the environment. It's about our responsibility to care for the planet which has been created by God and entrusted into our care, and is also to care for those who will live with the results of any of our actions, including those who will live in other generations that will live with the results of the decisions that we make today. And so care of creation requires having motivations that encompass more than just our short-term interests, but these larger-sided goals, larger values. And so whether it is a motivation based in fear or a motivation based in hope, we all have these forces that strongly drive the decisions that we make and that have power. And when we speak, as we do on this Sunday in the year, about Christ as king, it's good to think about what that means and how that is about power. So, Christ the King, I think, is a little bit of a a challenging Sunday because we don't live with a king. Um, Our main reference to kings or queens, I think, for a lot of us, as we look to England, uh, to Britain, and um, there was a lot of commotion about celebrating the life of the queen, and now there's a new king. But that, was, that, was a, that is a royalty that has been stripped of much of its actual worldly power. Um, and our country was founded, really, opposed to having a king. <clears throat> and so it seems like a strange thing to celebrate Christ as king. And it's just hard for us to fit that in. What does that really mean? So that's why I want today to reclaim it. this question about what does it mean for Christ to have power, and what kind of power we're talking about. Christ the King Sunday was begun really not that long ago, in 1925, by Pope Pius XI, and he started this day as a tradition for the church out of a desire to point people away from the things of this world that rule the hearts of humans, and instead to point us to the rule of Christ. In his reign of love, which looks very different from the reign of the powers of this world. As Paul Tillich said, God can be defined as our ultimate concern. You might say our ultimate motivation. And yet we need to be reminded that this is the reality almost every day when other concerns and other motivations come and cloud our view. This also, Christ the King Sunday, is the last Sunday of the church year. Uh, We begin the new year with next Sunday, which is the beginning of the season of Advent. And so from a screenplay standpoint, this is the finale. This is the um, ending, ending on an intentional and dramatic note we're seeing that at the very end, the one who reigns is Christ, the king of kings. One who is a king that is not about the love of power, but is about the power of love. In Jeremiah, the first reading that we heard today from the Old Testament, Jeremiah says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and shatter the sheep of Israel, and scatter the sheep of Israel. The word shepherd in his context, is a code word for kings and princes. Woe to the kings and the princes who destroy and scatter the sheep of Israel. Woe to them who lead their people astray. Jeremiah was writing in a time of warning when the people of Judah were facing exile by the Babylonians, and the king at that time was named Zedekiah, and the nickname Zedekiah for this king means God is my righteousness. The name was given to him as a warning to remind him that although he was a king, there was a king above him, and it was from that higher king that he got his righteousness. His kingship came from that bigger, righteous kingship. And do you notice at the very end of this reading from Jeremiah, he says, there will be a new king a new king that is coming with a new name, and his name is God is our righteousness. The one who will also be called God is with us, Emmanuel. And we get another glimpse of what this true kingship really looks like in that surprising reading that we have for this day in the gospel. Jesus being crucified on the cross. Christ the king being crucified next to two common criminals. Do you notice who calls him king? He is called king by the soldiers when they mock him. They make fun of him and deride him, calling him king, and there is a sign above him that says king of the Jews. It's ironic because they don't realize that when they call him king, they are actually speaking the truth. And this crucified king displays what real kingship looks like. Christ is the king of mercy, the king of love, the king of peace. And this king says, in that moment, the words, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. His power is not merely immediate, but ultimate. Rather than the power to crush, he has the power to forgive. Rather than the power to exclude, the power to embrace. Rather than the power to merely respond to any motivation externally, he has the power to give ultimate motivation, to be the ultimate one to reign. He is our ultimate concern, the King of Kings. Amen.